Why does God willingly allow tragedy to befall good people? You know, that is one of the most difficult and challenging questions that humanity has ever been forced to grapple with. I mean, it's one thing when evil people, wicked people, bad people experience tragedy. Like, I mean, people hardly batted an eye when video surfaced of of tyrants like Gaddafi being executed in the streets of Libya or Saddam Hussein being hung for his crimes against humanity. No one shed a tear. Yes, it was a tragedy, but it was warranted. It was deserved. It had been earned. But you know, it's entirely a different struggle, a different thing. When tragedy strikes what we would perceive to be the innocent, Someone that didn't do anything wrong, didn't deserve it, didn't seem to warrant it. Like, what what do you say? And as a pastor, you encounter these situations. They're the most difficult. But how do you counsel or, or, or console the individual, the parents, when their child dies a brutal, unexpected death? Or from a freak accident? Like, how do you console a father and children when their, when their mother, a mother of five, gets diagnosed with an untreatable cancer? Like, like, how can we find any type of rational reason to explain systematic things we see within our country, things like mass shootings at churches or elementary schools? How do we rationalize the pervasive killing of Christians in places all across the world? You know, it would seem that when atrocities happen to innocent people, because we can't rationalize the acts themselves, you know what our culture does? And it's kind of, in in a lot of ways, a form of national distraction. But we will immediately begin to discuss what we can do to stop those events from ever taking place again. We will immediately try to assign blame, to pinpoint a cause. And we do this almost... In, in, in the effect of creating some type of positive result, something that positively mani- manifests from a tragedy to kind of satisfy this, this internal need for purpose. And yet we see tragedy and tragedy and tragedy. Well, there are several ways that you could approach this multifaceted question. I, I can say with complete certainty that one of the reasons God allows such tragedy to befall good people boils down to the simple fact the way that good people often handle tragedy ends up challenging in turn many of our incorrect and societal uh, misinterpretations or false perceptions concerning God. This morning, we're going to dive right into the middle of a story. A story recorded for us in Acts 27 and 28. And because this is the case, before we get to our text this morning and kind of unpack the thought, I think it would be helpful maybe just to give a little bit of the larger context uh, to the story unfolding that we're going to dive into. Now, even though the Apostle Paul is right in the very center of God's will, even being equipped with promises, promises from Jesus that he would testify in Rome itself, you can say that his journey has not been smooth sailing. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem a few years earlier by a group of of Judaizers, the religious establishment that hated his guts. Paul knew he would not get a fair shake, not a fair trial. 
He knew that in the end he'd likely lose his life. And so he decides to appeal his case to be heard before Emperor Nero. Now, the right to appeal one's case was reserved for all Roman citizens, of which Paul was. Now, after a lengthy stay under guard and protection in Caesarea, Paul is placed into the custody of a Roman centurion, a centurion of the Augustan regiment, a man named Julius. Under his supervision, they begin a journey by sea to Italy, the capital. Now, almost from the beginning of their trek, the winds were contrary, and the voyage proved to be difficult. After jumping from the protection of island to island, trying to make their way north, Paul ends up recommending that they port for the winter in the city of Fair Havens. Tragically, Julius, the shipmasters, they should have listened to the Apostle Paul. They should have heeded his counsel because they end up getting caught in a wicked storm that ends up spanning the greater part of two very long weeks. Now, as we'll see, though Paul was bound for Rome, God had an interesting stop along the journey that was not part of the original manifest. For the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions, this tempest would be a a directive storm that God would use to orchestrate events in order to place his man exactly where he wanted him in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Again, let's dive into the flow of the narrative. We're in Acts chapter 27. We'll start reading with verse 15. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, likely with the Apostle Paul in this particular journey, serving as a personal physician, he writes, So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Claude, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and were so driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, kind of makes you seasick reading it, doesn't it? The next day, they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and he said, Men, I like the, the confidence, the vibrato, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> I love the Apostle Paul, the tenacity. We should not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So this is kind of a prophetic word given by Paul. He adds that there had stood by him this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve. And he told me this. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God will do just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Verse 27. 
Now when the 14th night had come, it's been quite an experience. As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. You know, isn't it interesting, this, this, this line, fearing lest they should run aground, which, again, is not good for a ship. Everyone on board is on their knees praying just to see the morning. You know, in 1942, serving as the U.S. military chaplain during the Battle of Bataan, one of the bloodiest campaigns in the South Pacific, Reverend William Cummings, he famously told his men that there are, quote, no atheists in foxholes. It's true. In the end, the reverend would die with the very men he'd served. You know, there is something about the threat of death, certain death, imminent death, that forces men and women, forces people to consider what we would rather ignore, what we don't like thinking about, eternity. What happens after death, the afterlife? I'm of the opinion that in His great love for us, sometimes there are moments when God indeed allows crises into our lives for such a purpose. To get us to think about eternal things. To reprioritize the moment to drive us to our knees in prayer. Verse 30. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff, and they let it fall off. I find this development really interesting. Like everyone knows the ship, because of the soundings, was approaching land. Which confirms, in turn, exactly what Paul said would happen. They would have to run aground on a certain island. Additionally, though, Paul has made it clear the ship would be lost. It would sink. He has promised and reassured that there would be no loss of life in the process. And yet, as everyone is praying for daybreak, these sailors, men that own the boat, that operate the vessel, functioning kind of under this pretense that they were, they were going to be putting out anchors from the prow. What, in, what are they actually doing? Well, Luke says that they were actually seeking to escape the ship. Now, recognizing the plot afoot, Paul, he comes to Julius, and he warns that this promise of survival would come to naught. It would be vacated unless the men stay in the ship. It was the precondition. So heeding Paul's warning, Julius immediately commands the soldiers to cut away the ropes of the the skiff. They let it fall into the sea. The skiff is lost. I mean, they are now riding it out. Now, herein lies an important component to the promises of God, and really, more broadly, kind of all promises, that you would be very wise to consider for a moment. 
You know, promises are only worth something to those who actually believe them. You know, God had promised that there would be no loss of life. But if these men took matters into their own hands and willfully acted in disbelief, well, the promises of God would be nullified. And don't miss the implications of that, Christian. There is no doubt that God has made unshakable, amazing, incredible promises to you. But never forget those promises are only good if you believe them and embrace them. Will you believe God? Will you trust Him and allow Him the time to make good on the promises that He's articulated to you through His Word or in His Spirit? Or would you act in disbelief? And in turn, pridefully nullifying those promises by taking matters into your own hands. If you do, don't blame God. Verse 33, Luke tells us that as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and have eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. So he prayed over the food. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and took food for themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. Yeah, imagine, imagine this scene, right, of, of Paul standing up in the midst. I mean, this is the, the day has come. And he takes bread and he gives thanks. He prays over it in the presence of them all. Then he breaks it and he starts to eat himself. You know, talk about being a witness in the storm. You know, Paul's faith in God's promises was so real that he was able to give thanks to God for what God would do before they were even standing on dry land. It'd be easy in that scenario to give thanks to God when you're on the shore, rubbing your toes in the sand. But to give thanks to God when you're still on the boat, that takes faith. Luke records that as a result of Paul's faith, as a result of this expression of thanksgiving, what happens? Everyone on the ship, barbarian, heathen, savage, sailor, Jew, Roman alike, they were encouraged and took food themselves. That would even include the sailors who had just earlier tried to escape the vessel. Verse 38. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. And it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors, left them in the sea, they're not going to need the anchors. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind, and they made for shore. But, that's not a good word to follow, such a dramatic scene. Striking a place where the two seas met, so this is a sandbar. They ran the ship aground, and the prow of the ship, the front, stuck fast and remained immovable. And as that's happening, the stern is being broken up by the violence of the waves. Now, knowing the ship and the cargo would be lost, the crew has already decided to lighten the ship 
They've already thrown cargo overboard. Now they throw the rest of the wheat, their food, into the sea. The plan is to run the ship as close to the land as they can get. Luke says to do this, they let go of the anchors, they loose the rudders, they hoist the sail, they make for sure. But the ship runs aground a little early. And so with the prow stuck fast and being immovable, the stern is being broken into pieces. It's dramatic by these waves, the violence of the waves crashing into it. It's crisis now. The end is near. So verse 42 says that the soldiers now plan to kill the prisoners, lest any of them them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, again Julius, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Now, seeing that everyone on board was about to be forced to make a swim for it, a swim for the shore, all the men were going overboard. The soldiers are in quite a predicament. What do you you do with the prisoners? You see, in Roman times, in Roman culture, if a prisoner was able to escape the custody of the soldier charged to his care, whatever the crime and therefore punishment that the criminal who had escaped was supposed to receive would get transferred onto the soldier. So these soldiers get prisoners. This is going to be a very chaotic situation. Everyone's going to be swimming for sure, fearing that prisoners might escape. And as a result, their sentence is being extended now to these innocent soldiers. They decide that, you know, let's kill the prisoners so that they can't escape. You can understand the sentiment. You can even understand the reasoning. And yet we're told that Julius, he wants to save Paul. So he presents a solution. Trying to alleviate the fears, the understandable fears of these soldiers. We read that he commanded that those who could swim get to land first. With those who couldn't, using boards and parts of the ship, as flotation devices. Now this is very shrewd by Julius, and we'll have to read a little bit between the lines, but since it was required that every Roman soldier be able to swim, it was part of their training, it's likely that Julius was in actuality here commanding the soldiers, saying, hey, you guys can swim. You guys dive in. You get to land first. The prisoners who more than likely couldn't swim, they'll follow behind you know, on whatever type of flotation device. So by the time they get to land, you can make sure everyone is rounded up and accounted for. Logically, it's all made sense. It would minimize the likelihood of any escape. Chapter 28, beginning with verse 1. Now when they had escaped, they found themselves, they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives, Luke tells us, showed unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. It's it's an amazing thing that this ship, (laughs) by the way, navigated for a few weeks by nothing other than the natural forces of an incredible storm, found itself actually running aground in the middle of the Mediterranean on the shore of a tiny island called Malta. Malta was small. I mean, this is like, again, navigated only by the storm. It's like hitting, you know, it's like like finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, this is highly unlikely if it's random. 
Malta is, is just 17 miles wide by 9 miles long, and in an ocean, finding that randomly is, well, it's a God thing. This shore that they, they run up into, that they swim to, this bay that they saw, is today, that location is called St. Paul's Bay. It's fitting, isn't it? Now, as we're about to see, while there may have been no hand of man on the rudder of this ship for the last few weeks, the hand of God, as we'll see, was firmly at the wheel. Nothing about our story, nothing was happening outside of God's sovereign control or beyond His divine purposes. Verse 3, so with that context established, we're told, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and had laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw this creature hanging from Paul's hand, they turn and they say to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But Paul shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting, these natives, that Paul would swell up or just suddenly fall down dead. But after they looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Imagine that scene, right? Paul has just survived the storm. He's had incredible faith and tenacity, bravery. He survived the shipwreck. He's now demonstrating a servant's heart, even though he's still a prisoner, by gathering sticks for the fire. It's still winter, there's still rain, it's still cold. So Paul's doing this. I mean, he's had a great attitude, he's done all the right things, he's had a servant's heart. And then... As he's placing this bundle of sticks onto the fire, out from the bundle comes a viper. And it jumps out, and it bites him and fastens onto his hand. <laughs> like, what's up with that, right? I mean, if you're in Paul's sandals, you've got to be saying, are you kidding me? Really? Now, the first thing I want to point out about this is that the natives saw everything that had just happened to Paul. Like, they, they were eyewitnesses to it. Though Paul had been busy serving the Lord, he's been bitten by a venomous viper. Like, please keep in mind that serving Jesus, doing the right things, having a good attitude, doesn't always guarantee you won't get bit. Then notice what the natives immediately feel compelled to do. Tragedy strikes. And in the exact same manner as you and I, as what our culture would do, what is their immediate response? Their immediate response is to look for some type of cause, causation, a reason for the tragedy. These natives need a sensible explanation for this tragedy they're witnessing right before their eyes. And initially, they conclude that Paul must have been a murderer, who though he had escaped the sea, justice would not allow him to live. Like if they could cast Paul 
as being worthy of such judgment? Well, then the tragedy wouldn't seem random and would instead possess some type of rational purpose. To do this, they assumed the tragedy was an indication of what's known as divine justice. That divine justice was finally catching up. Yeah, Paul made it through the storm. Yeah, he survived the shipwreck. But the snake bite was seen as the definitive proof that Paul had to have been a bad person experiencing the inescapable righteous judgments of God. Yeah, you got through the storm. Yeah, you got through the shipwreck. But God was going to get you regardless. You know, in philosophical terms, we'd say that, that they believed in this moment that Paul was experiencing a form of karmic justice. Uh, karma. Karma states that actions bring upon oneself inevitable results, good or bad, either in this life or in one's future incarnations. In, in other words, tragedy can be seen as the just result of our past evil deeds finally calling us to account. In our culture, this belief in karma is fundamental to our rationalizing of human tragedy. You know, again, going back to the illustration of Gaddafi or Saddam, we have no problems seeing those men, those wicked, evil men, meet brutal ends. And what will we say? Well, hey man, what comes around goes around, right? I mean, those guys had it coming. That type of an idea, that type of, of logic, it provides a purpose. It's not random. They're getting what they deserve. In Paul's case, the snake bite and his soon-to-be-painful death, the natives saw as just justice for some prior misdeeds. And yet, what made the whole situation confusing for all those who witnessed it was that Paul, well, he shakes the viper off into the fire. And then what does he do? He, he, he plays no mind to it. He suffers, we're told, no harm. I mean, this challenges their preconceived notions. Paul acts nonchalant. It didn't hurt. He suffered no harm. He, he, they were looking for swelling. There was no swelling. They were looking for him to fall down dead. He didn't fall down dead. Like, all of this challenges their idea of justice, which leaves them now to, to some type of a need for explaining what they're seeing. So Luke says that over time, as they're watching all of this, their minds change. Instead of Paul being a murderer who deserved to get bit by a viper, because now he's survived the bite of a viper, he's probably not guilty, and instead, he must be a god. Now, the interesting thing, and in many ways, kind of the irony to it all, concerning their reaction, is that in, in a lot of ways, these natives were right about Paul's guilt. But they were wrong about God's judgment. Like the truth, don't forget the story of Paul. Paul had actually been a murderer. He had been a murderer. And karmic justice absolutely required that he pay for those transgressions someday. However, what the natives didn't understand was that the justice of God towards Paul's murderous sins had already been satisfied on the cross of Calvary. You see, Jesus had already experienced the real snake bite on Paul's behalf. 
Jesus had died in Paul's place as a result of this deadly venom. Divine justice on the cross had been satisfied. Paul's debt had been paid, meaning that the tragedy they had just witnessed wasn't divine judgment. It was just the natural sting of life. Wasn't the judgment of God. What I find to be powerful about this story is that the way Paul handled being snake-bitten, like how he handled this tragedy, the sting, it demonstrated a divine power, honestly unnatural to mortal man. And this demonstration of this divine power foreign to man was so palpable, so tangible, that it impacted these natives. It was something they could witness for themselves. That's true, Paul was clearly no God. But it was true that he did suffer no harm in the midst of the tragedy. Because the snake's venom had no power. As a direct result of the permanent work that God had performed in his life, the natives took witness that didn't happen every day. Please keep in mind that the world around you watches with greater attention when the followers of Jesus suffer harm. And they watch with greater attention when Christians suffer because people want to see, they want to witness, they want to note how you react. Like like the truth. Anybody can enjoy the, the, the good seasons of life. But how does someone handle tragedy? Is it different? The truth is that our reactions when facing personal tragedies, and again, no man is ever immune from these type of, of conditions. The way we handle tragedy is the quickest and most profound way that we can differentiate ourselves with the world around us, that we can demonstrate a supernatural power and peace. You know, it's when we react to the snake bite of life, when we get bit, when we react in the same way as Paul, that the world gets a glimpse of something otherworldly. It is when we handle suffering with peace and strength and faith, the world around us, they get a peek into the divine. They witness in that moment the light of God shining brightly beneath the veil of our human flesh in weakness. Gold gets pure when it's refined in fire. A few years ago, I saw an incredible example of this play out one evening on my TV screen. It blew my mind. On the evening of June 17, 2015, a very young, disturbed man by the name of Dylan Roof, he entered the Emanuel AME Church in downtown uh, Charleston, South Carolina, And after attending the service for about an hour, proceeds to get up and open fire, indiscriminately killing nine innocent people. It was a horrifying crime that captured the the national consciousness. Now, two days after his arrest on June 19th, Dylan appeared in court via video for his arraignment where some of the family's victims were allowed to address the accused. 
I happened to be watching part of what took place uh, being aired on the Fox News show, The Five. Uh, Let let me actually take just a second and play you a clip of video uh, from this particular hearing. Also appearing in court were the families of those so callously slain by this murderous thug. They chose not to condemn and seek vengeance, but to forgive and offer prayers. They asked God to have mercy on his soul. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And, and I'll never be the same. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. But as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you. But may God have mercy on you. I too thank you on the behalf of my family for not allowing hate to win. For me, I'm a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing the pain has always joined in in our family with is that she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate. So we have to forgive. And I pray God on your soul. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. So, KG, that was that was heart wrenching. Listening to six or seven family members of the victims, and almost all of, if not all of them, to the T, said, "I forgive you." Even though, in just literally a day and a half after their their family members were slain, they're still they're they're that forgiving. While the words of these dear folks are powerful, and man, the demonstration of forgiveness. Their witness of Jesus deeply moving. And it is, man. You're gripped by it, aren't you? It was the reaction, as the show unfolded, of one of the panelists on The Five that caught my attention. Greg Gutfeld was born and raised a Catholic. But today, if you're familiar with him, he is an outspoken atheist. I want to play you his reaction to the video you just saw? Uh, That might have been the most powerful expression of any human emotion I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, I will never be that good. And we witnessed unmitigated, pure evil. And that, to me, is like the most, the, the best example of what is good that I've ever seen in my life. And I, you know, I am not religious, but I see this and I can't, you know, begin to understand, like, does religion make great people or do great people c- go to religion? I don't know. All I know is what I saw. I can't even understand. I can't even comprehend that. It's so beyond me and, and so amazing. I'm, I'm gobsmacked. Why does God willingly allow tragedy to befall good people? Why does he allow tragedy 
to strike his people? Why did God allow Dylan Roof to brutally execute nine of our brothers and sisters? I can't honestly stand here and give you some definitive and or even satisfying answer to that question. But I can say confidently the following. First, the men and women who lost their lives that evening, I can say they were loved by God. And I can say that upon their physical deaths, as with so many others, they instantly entered the glories of heaven, hearing from their Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, death can take nothing from the follower of Jesus. It is the moment when we finally get it all. Sure, these folks experience what some might say to be a tragic end to their earthly existence, but that won't be the end of their earthly existence. I can promise you they awoke to a great reward with zero regrets. You know, in the end, the venom of the great serpent of old, it proves powerless over our destinies. Why? Because Jesus has already satisfied the righteous judgments for our sin. The second thing I can say with certainty, though it is always the right thing to mourn loss, the loss of loved ones, you know, it became obvious, not just to me, to Christians, but to the world, that the way the good and godly people of that church handled this incredibly tragic situation demonstrated something the world didn't have. The way they handled the situation demonstrated the supernatural power of God. Just like Paul on the island of Malta to these savages, these natives. The folks in that church, their reaction, the demonstration of forgiveness, it's supernatural. Greg Gutfeld even recognizes it. It's something foreign to this world, to this planet. Something that comes from a deeper well. You see, the way that church community demonstrated love in the midst of unspeakable pain and suffering, it gave our society a genuine glimpse of the Jesus we all claim to follow. You know, because their public reaction wasn't normal. And what would be the normal reaction? Well, we see it all the time on the news, don't we? Vindictiveness towards the accused, hatred, judgment, retribution. Their reaction, love and forgiveness, grace, mercy, because that was so abnormal, it forced people like Greg Gutfeld to consider, how? How is that, where does that come from? How is that possible? Like, understand, since our lives have been transformed by Jesus, and because we've been given the promise of eternity, understand our perspective on the human experience should be different from the world. Sure, Jesus promised, never promised his followers that we would be immune from the snake bites of this life. Paul's a great example of it. But he has promised that these snakes that strike no longer possess venom over life and death. You know, for the believer, tragedy is really not all that tragic because in the end, as Paul we too will, quote, suffer no harm. You know, this is why the Apostle Paul could write gloriously in 1 Corinthians 15. He could say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in Jesus. Let's just read a a few more verses before we close out our time. Verse 7. We read that in that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of fever and dysentery. So Paul went in to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as was necessary. <laughs> like, can you find a better example of, of hindsight being 2020? Like, think about it. The storm now makes sense. It was used by God to bring Paul 500 miles off course to the island of Malta. The shipwreck now makes sense. Without provisions, they would need the hospitality and care of the natives. Even the snake bite makes sense. For it was used by God to demonstrate his power working in and through the life of Paul, which created his encounter with this man, Publius. Now we're told that as a result of Paul's ministry, healing this man's father, Luke says word spread and all those on the island came and were healed. What Luke is describing here is nothing shy than a revival breaking out on Malta as a direct result of Paul's faithfulness and his obedience and his suffering. Now with regards to human suffering, there are really only two options. Either God is not in control, therefore you, any suffering is random and just bad luck, meaning there isn't a purpose to suffering or a, a point behind it all. Option one. Or option two, God is in control, meaning that yes, while there is suffering, it's not random and, and is allowed, meaning that still while difficult, there's the consolation that there's a purpose and a point behind it all. Like there really isn't another option. This morning, if you find yourself suffering a tragedy, and man, over the last year, we have all suffered. If you find yourself this morning in the midst of a storm, a loved one with a terrible diagnosis, the loss of a mom or a dad, the downturn and funds being laid off, whatever that storm looks like, the wear and tear of digital learning, I want you to consider, how did Paul get an audience with Publius? How did revival break out on the island? Well, Paul had to first endure a storm that brought him to the island. And then he had to survive a shipwreck that got him to the shore. And then he had to live through a snake bite so that the word could spread about a man in whom the power of God dwelt. 
If you rely on God in the midst of your storm, if you keep your eyes fixated on Him as a source of your strength, if you obey His commands and remain faithful to the end, God will use whatever experience you're going through for eternal consequences, eternal results. People will look to see how you handle getting bit. And if you handle it in faith, with the power of God, not of your own, but yielded through the Spirit that indwells you, Jesus shines all the more brightly. It's a testimony. It's a demonstration. Now there's one final point that needs to be made about this story, and I'll close with this. You know, if in the grand scheme of things, the storm presents kind of an allegory for life, you know, that all men, regardless of race and ethnicities or statuses, places in life, if all men share the same journey that includes a storm, life is a storm, you know, then there is an interesting picture to this that we can't overlook. You know, as Acts 27 ends, again, you have this group of men with nothing in common but the storm they all shared. They are all at the the mercy of events that are out of their control. And yet, in the midst of a storm, when all hope seems lost, God leads them to this little island in the middle of the ocean called Malta. Now, Now, what makes this detail so fascinating, as far as, again, the allegory is concerned, is the word Malta. It literally means, I love it, it means refuge. And to me, the imagery is amazing. In the midst of their storm, God was actually, literally, practically providing them, the shipmen, the soldiers, the prisoners alike, a place of refuge. Again, on the shore, the storm continued, the rain still pounded, the cold set in, but they had a place of safety. Like, I mean, really, can you think of a better picture for what the church for what our gathering on Sunday, for what it should be? Can you think of a better picture for what the church should be providing a world of suffering people, desperately trying to make it through their storms? That once a week on Sunday, they would be washed up onto the sands of a safe place. Now, sure, I say this often. The church is not, the fundamental purpose of the church is not to be a, a hospital for sick people. It's to be a training ground for doctors you send into the world to the sick, right? The role of a church, yes, it's to equip believers to fulfill their personal ministry and their individual calling by teaching God's word and providing to a lesser extent a place for Christian community. But I do believe, and I think it's presented in this incredible picture, that the church has also been commissioned, again, with the task of equipping, to be a place designed by God where people can come and take refuge, can find a reprieve, can be safe in the midst of their storm. I don't know about you, but, but I want Calvary 316 to be known as such a place. I want our church to be a refuge where people can come in from their storm. They can leave the burdens at the door and they can come and connect with Jesus. That they can be ministered to by the preaching of His Word. 
that they can commune with Him by taking the elements, that they can be ministered to by Him through worship, that they can be prayed to and anointed with oil, that they can be encouraged through the connections of other believers that are also in storms, that we can be a church where people can come in from the storm and be filled with the Spirit and built up to go back. I want our church to be a safe place, to be a sanctuary where people from all walks of life can find a temporary reprieve for at least an hour and a half from whatever the storm they're facing. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this very cool story and all that it reveals to us and what it says to us and what it encourages us in. 